Deuteronomy chapter 9 is where we left off, if you'll join me there. At this point, we're sort of coming towards the close of the second of a series of sermons that Moses here is giving to the younger generation, the next generation of the children of Israel as they're sort of on the border about to actually cross now into the promised land as they will under the conquest of Joshua to take that territory and actually possess all that God has promised to them. And so Moses realizing that uh, the window of his life is about to come to a close, that he is about to to die very shortly and to transition uh, into heaven and turn the leadership of the people over to Joshua like anyone sort of who coming to that final hour of their life there are things perhaps on their heart that they want to share and uh, they want to convey and so Moses is in the book of Deuteronomy here through these series of a few sermons just rehearsing many of the things reiterating to the children of Israel things that he's already taught to them experiences that they've already uh, had emphasizing this theme of obedience, which obviously was a real tripping point for the children of Israel uh, many times over, as we've seen thus far in our study together through the Old Testament. And, you know, as you come to chapter 9 and 10, I'm not much for a, a title person. I'm not good like some of these people who, you know, get all caught up in sophisticated, cute little uh, catchy titles or whatever. But, you know, looking at chapter, chapter 9 and 10, uh, you know, you could almost, uh, you know, summarize what's there or if you were to title it, basically, in essence, it boils down to God is saying, look, you're really rotten and I'm really gracious. You know, so so if you're a title person, that's about, that is probably a perfect encapsulation or if tonight's been a long day and you pass out five minutes into the study, you, you got the message right there because uh, that's the essence of what God is truly driving home here. And I'll tell you something. You know, I, you'll see as we begin to work our way through chapter 9 here, if there is one thing that I genuinely love about the Lord, about our God, it is he has always been and continues to prove himself so refreshingly honest, brutally honest. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, I... You know, I, I, I love myself personally. I don't like to mince words or beat around the bush or, you know, play games. I just, I, I love when people are just very direct, not rude, but, you know, direct and just very clear and, and just refreshingly honest, just brutally honest. In fact, the Bible even says, in fact, I was talking to my, my daughter who's away at college just recently about, she said she's finding some friends now who she really appreciates, able to encourage each other in the Lord and even just say things to each other sometimes that are hard to keep each other accountable and, and I shared with her that proverb as we were talking about that the other day of how the proverbs even tell us faithful are the wounds of a friend and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy that you in essence can tell those who actually really care about you and are genuine friends and those who care about you the most because they're the individuals who even if it means wounding or hurting your pride or your self-image or even wounding to an extent the relational experience you have with one another for a time that they're willing to risk that to even wound us to tell us the truth and to be honest with us if it's going to help us and it's going to benefit us like a doctor who is only showing that he cares to say, look, it's hard to say this, but the test result says cancer. Uh, and I have to inform you of that if I'm going to be able to help you in some capacity. And, you know, I look at the Lord, you know, the Bible tells us that there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother and, and, and our father is a good father and he's a good God and, and he is not in any way uncomfortable with just being very honest with us, honest with us in regards to who we really are, who we're not, uh, and just telling us the truth about ourselves. And there's something so healthy and so wonderful about that. And it's one of the things that really attracts me about reading the Bible. <laughs> I love to read the Bible because uh, God just states things as they are, not rude. Uh, God's never rude. He's never unkind. He's never unloving. God is love. But because he is loving, he's honest and he just communicates the truth. And boy, I'll tell you, he, as Moses is speaking to the children of Israel here, he really conveys some very hard, honest realities to them to really help them grasp who they are. But it also becomes the backdrop for recognizing how incredibly gracious that God is. 
and that it's all about the grace of God. And like Paul would say, but by the grace of God, there go I. And just that recognition of how we are quite rotten as people, but God is incredibly, radically gracious to us again and again and again, whether it's nationally, whether it's personally, it's our families, and we see that really emphasized here. So look as he begins here in verse 1 of chapter 9. He's continuing now. Wrapping up this second sermon in the midst of it, uh, he says to them, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today. Now, not literally today. He's using that in a, in a sense, uh, you know, symbolically in the same way the Bible speaks of the day of the Lord. It's not talking about a literal day when the Bible says the day of the Lord, as we've talked about before, but referring to a time period. Uh, and this is the idea here. It would be about another, chronologically, about another month or so uh, from this point where they will actually literally cross over into the land, but letting them know, look, this is the day. Uh, today's the day of salvation. That this is on the horizon. You're about to cross over, reminding them that that is why he's sharing these things, reminding them of things that are important that they need to know to be prepared to step into what God has in store for them and not miss the blessing of God this time. He says, you're about to go in and to dispossess, he tells them, nations, look how he describes them, greater and mightier than yourself. Cities greater and fortified up to heaven. A people great and tall. The descendants of the Anakim, who we've talked about before, a, uh, a tribal people who seem to have a, a, some type of a genetic uh, ability to be taller than others that seem to you know be rather tall those who we think of in the bible like goliath and people like that the anakim were known to be a people who were giant like in their height and their physical stature whom you know he says and whom you've heard it said everybody knew who the anakim were who can stand before the descendants of anak so uh, here notice as god begins this next section through moses through the words of Moses now, he, he reminds the people, listen, you're about to cross over into the land. And once again, God is very candid with them. He, he's very frank and direct. And he says, listen, the reality is you're completely outmatched. The people who you're about to face, they're bigger than you. They're stronger than you. They're more experienced than you. They're a mightier people than you in every way. Their physical capabilities, their fortified cities. And keep in mind, the children of Israel, in essence, are nothing more at this point in time than a group of people who primarily were slaves for hundreds of years, servants and slaves. Uh, they're not trained warriors. You know, they fought a few battles at this point, as we've seen thus far. God's been equipping them. But they're about to go on a military conquest, so they don't have quite the expertise, you know, the military savvy, and they're about to go against a people who completely, in every way, outmatch them, are stronger than them, and, and God does not diminish the reality of the incredible obstacle that's in front of them. The Lord doesn't tone it down and say, mm, I don't want to intimidate them, so let me not make it look as, you know, let me minimize the problem or let me minimize the obstacle or the, the threat that's against them. Instead, God is very, God says, look, let's not minimize it. It is what it is. These people are much stronger than you. This is going to be something that is way beyond your capacity to handle. It's bigger than you. It's much larger than you. There is no way that you would be able to handle this. Now you're thinking, that doesn't sound like a good way to encourage people. You know, like, Lord, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to make the next generation go, you know what? Maybe another 40 years in the wilderness wouldn't be that bad. I mean, our parents survived it, and like we saw last week, their feet didn't swell and their clothes didn't wear out for 40 years. You know, we could probably get another 40 out of these. Maybe we'll just keep these robes and, and just take another tour through the wilderness again. God is being very direct and saying, look, I'm not toning down the reality. This is huge. This is very hard. And, you know, sometimes in our lives, I think it's almost good for us, and God is gracious to us, even the sense of letting us grow and, and face the realities where at times we may face very huge obstacles, things that are very intimidating, they're very threatening. It's much greater than your ability to handle it. It's much bigger than what you are able to handle on your own. But see, that sets the backdrop for God then to say, 
but therefore you'll realize the victory, the ability to overcome it, to handle it, to succeed through it, had really nothing to do with you. It had everything to do with me. Because left to yourself, you would have been defeated. You would have been destroyed. You would have been overcome. So sometimes God lets us see, to an extent, the problem for what it is. Yeah, that's a really huge bill. That's a really huge you know, medical problem. That's a really huge circumstance or threatening you know, thing that you're facing or whatever it may be. And the Lord says, yeah, look, that's pretty huge, isn't it? That's way over your head. But the Lord says, but see, that sets a beautiful backdrop because then you're going to see that as a God and it is your God, I'm so much greater than any obstacle that you can face. And because I am so powerful and great, it gives me a chance to demonstrate how great I am to show you in comparison to this huge thing, it's nothing but like a little grain of sand in comparison to the grandeur and the greatness of how God is. So God tells them this reality and he says, verse 3, Therefore understand today, though you know that, understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you. Again, isn't it wonderful to know that God precedes us wherever he leads us? That no matter where we are going or what we're going to have to go into or what we're going to have to face or go through, th that the Lord doesn't say, well, you go ahead and holler if you can't handle it. God doesn't work that way. God goes before us. So many times, you know, sovereignly, he's going before us and he's, you know, dealing with people's hearts and doing things on the front end ahead of us before we even get there. So things are ready when we do get there or he's, you know, working to change hearts or, you know, Proverbs you know, tells us, we were just talking about this in a conversation with you know, a few guys the other day. Proverbs tells us, you know, the heart of a, of a king is in the hand of the Lord, like rivers of water. He can turn it whatever way he wishes. Uh, and the Lord says to them here, look, know that I'm going before you, look, as a consuming fire. And you can't stop a consuming fire. That is, it devours anything in its path, no matter what it is. He will destroy them and bring them down before you so you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. So again, great obstacle, way over their heads, but God says the reality is, here's the assurance, my presence will be with you. And my presence being with you, going before you, my presence with you, me and you is a majority, God is saying. It does not matter what the numbers are against you, the odds against you, how big. He says, I will precede you. And he says, I will be with you and I will bring them down before you. So again, the victory was the victory that God brought for them. All they were doing was cooperatively walking up the steps in the process. But the power was all God's. The victory, the defeat was all the Lord's. And they then would just enter in and be able to drive them on. How amazing. Keep in mind. In essence, what God is saying is how he would be supernaturally assisting them in the midst of their battle. Imagine that. Here are these people who aren't very trained warriors, again, servants and slaves, what they were. And as they're going in using weaponry and fighting battles, they're realizing as they're doing this, it's not their human strength. It's not their perfect battle plan, but it is just the Lord that has just given them favor to accomplish things. I mean, I'm sure that picture was real clear the first time when they uh, you know, came near Jericho and the Lord tells Joshua, well, here's, here's the battle plan. I want you to tell people, just, just march around the whole city. And, and as they're marching around the city, what are they doing? Going, wow, those walls are pretty high. I didn't realize until we got this close how high those walls were. And all of a sudden, now they're walking around going, wow, Maybe we should try another place before Jericho. I mean, those blue walls are pretty big. Maybe we should, you know, build up to Jericho or something. And so I said, I'll tell them to keep doing it for a whole week. Every day, take them out and make them look at the big obstacle again. And they're talking, wow. And every day, what, you know, humanity does every day, the walls go about six stories higher. The first day they looked about this high. Now, all of a sudden, they are stretching up to heaven. It's, oh, my, this is crazy. What are we doing? And then wonder the people of Jericho were yelling down from the wall and saying, that's what we thought. Walk around us. You'd never try and come through us. And all the you know, intimidation and the buildup. And then the last day, the Lord says, you know what? Tell them to actually do it half a dozen times. Tell them, tell them to walk around it multiple times in that one day. And then tell them all they got to do is just yell. And the walls will fall down. And you can just hear as Joshua tells them, so Joshua... 
General, what, what's the battle plan? Well, here's what we're going to do. God said, walk around, stare at it, don't say anything, don't talk back to them, and then on the last day, we're going to do it again. Again, they're thinking, look, we could, they could throw stones on us, kill us, and, and they're, they're in jeopardy. They're making themselves seemingly vulnerable. And he says, and then the last day, God says, if we just yell really loud, <laughs> the walls will fall down, and we can run. And the absurdity of that, but, what, but when it happened... What do you think they walked away realizing? That was the favor of God. God was supernaturally helping us. And how wonderful it is, is it not, when you obey the Lord in faith and you walk through situations sometimes and you truly can recognize, whether it's in a conversation or the way a circumstance unfolds or how something that seems so threatening turns around and it works and you realize, man, that was the Lord. That was totally the favor of God there, that God worked in that way. And this is what the Lord's assuring them of, to be honest with them, but give them this confidence to be able to trust him. Now, look what he goes on to say now, verse 4 to 6, and pay attention. Again, repetition in the Bible is never accidental. It is always purposeful. The Spirit of God is writing this. He wasn't lacking for something new to say. He's trying to reiterate something because we learn by repetition, repetition, repetition. Look, look at verses 4 to 6 with me. He says, do not think in your heart. Again, be careful of a wrong thinking, wrong thought process, he says, after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out before you that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Therefore, understand, verse 6, if you didn't hear it yet, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. Here's brutal honesty, for you are a stiff-necked people. <laughs> so, Moses here again. You know, this is one of the things I think that comes with with age too. You know, I, you know, I appreciate some of the you know folks that in my life that I know older than myself and just older saints in the Lord. You know, there's almost a part of that where when you start to realize that there's way more in the rearview mirror time wise than there is in front of you. You know, you just feel a lot more liberality to just just be honest with people and just to say it as it is. And here Moses again, he, he realizes I got about 30 days and I'm dead. So. If you don't like me, fire me. You know, you just you're stiff-necked. And he just he's he's just very honest here. But again, not because he's trying to be rude to the people or hurtful or critical. He's telling them the truth about their own condition and their own sinful propensities to help them. And you see, the reality is, even if you boil that all the way down to the gospel, the gospel isn't good news until you realize how bad you need the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's a part of this that is important. And here, Moses gives this exhortation now, verse 4, 5, and 6, three times. You notice the repetition there? He says, look, be careful of a wrong mindset. When you go into that land and the Lord drives out the nations before you and you possess the territories and you, God gives you favor in battles and you find success and prosperity and you start inheriting and enjoying all the land, he says, don't develop a wrong mindset where you begin to get, let's boil it down to this, self-righteous. Where you begin to get a self-righteous spirit where you wrongly begin to think in a wrong mindset, oh, well, I mean, of course, the reason why we inherited this land is because we're a pretty committed people. And we did, we did pray pretty much along the way, and we've been doing pretty good the past week or two, obeying the word of God, and where they would begin to look down, in a sense, upon others and think that there's something that was you know, special about them, that somehow they were being rewarded or blessed because of their performance or their righteousness or holiness or godliness. And, and, and Moses says, look, be careful. Don't think when you begin to inherit the land that the reason is because of your righteousness or uprightness in your heart. He says that's not the case. He says the truth of the matter is 
the only reason you are experiencing that blessing of God and the good things that God is doing is because it's a part of God's plan and it's a part of God's promise. It's not your performance. It's God's plan and it's God's promise because it was God's plan for them to be in the land. And he says the only reason you're inheriting a land is because not of your greatness, but it's because of the wickedness of the people who are in the land now who God was judicially judging after hundreds of years of ungodliness and immorality that he was cleansing and removing them from the land and Israel was just being used as God's judicial instrument militarily to displace them from the land. And God says, look, the only reason you're getting a land is because it's vacant. You're being used to displace them and I'm just graciously blessing you with that vacant land as I drive them out. It's not because you're more deserving or more worthy or more righteous in some way, but it is just my plan for you to be in that land. It's my plan that's being fulfilled. That's what God is saying. This is about the grace of God unfolding that God wanted to bless his people. And it was his plan to bring them into this land as well as it was the promise of God because he reminds them there in verse 5 that he is fulfilling the word which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it was God's plan being fulfilled and it was God's promises coming to pass. That was the reason they were experiencing the good things that they were going to experience, not because of their own self-righteousness or worth or those kind of things. And boy, that is such a good reminder because quite honestly, that is something we all can be so prone to. You know, the Lord begins to let us get a little bit of, you know, let's call it spiritual traction. You know, we begin to, you know, to make a little forward progress spiritually and we, we grow a little or we have a little victory over some enemies in our lives spiritually and we overcome maybe a few areas of sin in our life and we get a few Bible verses under our belt and, and, and we begin to establish a little bit of a consistent worship and prayer life and, and then all of a sudden we begin to lose this concept and this reality of, of who we are and the reality of just the amazing grace of God that's being lavished on us, that that's the reason for all the blessing and the victory and the good things we're experiencing. And we begin to get a little self-righteous. And we begin to think in a wrong mindset that it has something to do with us, like, like God's rewarding us or we're entitled to the blessings of God because we've performed so well. And so certainly, I mean, I mean, God has to reward me, doesn't he? I mean, I've, I've been performing so well recently as if somehow there's this earning chart that begins to unfold and that develops a self-righteous mindset, which is a very unhealthy thing. In fact, it's a very ugly thing from God's perspective. And so God warns them here of that where they begin to think they were more righteous or, or holy or upright in heart. And I'll tell you, there is something very perverse. Again, let's just be very frank. There's something very perverse in all of our flesh where we really like to be perceived as spiritual. We like for people to think we're actually more righteous than we really are. We like for people to get the image that we're actually way more dedicated or more spiritual or more holy or more upright in the things of the Lord than we, and our flesh yearns for that. You know, we, we, we think people are, oh, you're always trying to put on an image, but quite honestly, in the realm of, of Christianity and spiritual life, our flesh is so sick and distorted, it likes the same thing. I like for you to think that I'm more spiritual than I really am. We like that. And, and this is where this danger comes into play, where we begin to give off this image and we begin to believe it ourselves when the reality is, as God is saying, look, it has nothing to do with that. Be careful of that, he says. Don't let this self-righteous mindset, because self-righteousness leads to a plague of all kinds of things where we become very critical and we begin to disappreciate the grace of God and what he's doing in our lives. And we need to realize the only reason anything good is happening in any of our lives is because the plan of God is unfolding because he's a good father and every good and perfect gift comes down from above and because the promises of God are being fulfilled because he who begins a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so when I'm getting victory over sin, hey, praise the Lord. The reason I'm getting victory over sin is because that's God's plan for me as a Christian and that is God's promise to me as a Christian because the book of Romans says sin shall not have dominion over you. 
So it's not that I'm really good at defeating sin and I'm way more spiritual than these people who haven't overcome this level. No, it's because that's God's plan for me to overcome sin and the power of Christ and the Spirit is working in me and the promise of God is I'm not going to let sin have dominion over you so I'm going to help you experience my promises. But that we would keep that proper perspective, guard against self-righteousness and realize it is the goodness of God and the grace of God. And this is what they're being cautioned about here. He says, if anything else, he says, realize again, verse 6, that it is not you're not get, receiving this good land. And again, the land and the victory over the enemies is a picture of that inheritance of the spiritual life and victory over sin and enemies in our lives. He says, it's not your righteousness. And he just says, for you are a stiff-necked people. Again, just such a, a great direct term, a term speaking of stubbornness of being stiff-necked the idea is someone who just you know that image in your mind of just totally uncooperative you know you're trying to turn the head of you know a, a child if you ever you know maybe you're trying to turn them up and doing something and they just, you know and, and that's the idea god says that's what people are like that's naturally what we are like we're not naturally submitted people we're not naturally cooperative people god says no naturally you tend to be very stubborn very stiff-necked not compliant and that's the truth of the reality of all of our nature our sinful nature what we're prone to it's only as the grace of God by his spirit is working in us that we become more submissive more compliant and we begin to appreciate Lord thank you for humbling me and helping me to become more cooperative and obedient as the spirit of Christ works in us the Bible says that's how we begin to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law Paul talks about the righteous requirements of the law are filled in us as the spirit of Jesus within us makes us want to be obedient, makes us want to resist sin and walk in the ways that are righteous. Verse 7, he goes on, getting more directly on us. He says, remember, he picks up on that stiff neck term now for a bit. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Now, we know what provoking somebody is, right? You the image of you know uh, you know two young men in high school and somebody in somebody else's face and you know you know pushing somebody's forehead or you know provoking instigating and he says this is spiritually what they were doing to God he says remember how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you departed from the land of Egypt. So from day one, he says, they didn't have a very good track record. And we've seen that as we've studied through the books thus far we have. Until you came to this place, so for the past 38 to 40 years, that you have been, look what he calls them now, a rebellious people against the Lord. So there's you know, two great titles there, stiff-necked and rebellious. That's God's description of what the children of Israel are like. And truth be told, that is exactly what they were like. We find more often than not that they were rebellious against the Lord. Again, not instantly obedient. They would many times say, we will obey all that the Lord has said to us. But how many times did they rebel against the Lord? And again, why? Because by nature, we're rebels at heart. That's what we are by nature. That's what the Bible tells us about ourselves. That's why the first word so often out of a young child's mouth is no. We're rebels by nature. Our fallen sinful nature makes us not want to be inclined towards doing what is right, but it makes us want to rebel always against what is right. To be in control, to resist authority, whether it's parental authority or doing the right thing, we always are prone to want to rebel. That's what we gravitate towards. That's the natural inclination. That's why Proverbs tells us from a parenting perspective, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from them. Again, that's part of the parenting process, recognizing that as soon as they're born, they are adorable, but at the same time, they are the most dangerous thing on planet Earth because they are a cute little beautiful thing enclosed in this gorgeous wrapping and underneath is a rebel, a rebel. And that the goal of parenting is, is that through a process of correction and teaching and training to drive that rebellion out of their heart. Because if they rebel against the parent, then they will rebel against other forms of authority and ultimately they will rebel against the greatest authority, which is God in their life, and, and go on that self-destructive path. 
And this was the natural bent of Israel. They were stiff-necked. Moses says, from the day you left Egypt, you've been rebellious against the Lord. Again, from the day that they were redeemed and taken out, that rebellious streak didn't go away. And let me just say this again. That's a picture of salvation we've talked about, right? Being redeemed out of Egypt. And look, from the day of their redemption, their rebellious streak didn't go away. And I don't know about you, but even though I know Jesus and I've been born again and I, I love the Lord now, there's, there's a rebellious streak in me, my sin nature, that still wants to rebel against the Lord. I'm one of my favorite hymns. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Because that's the natural inclination. So here, the Lord just says, you've been stiff-necked, you've been rebellious. And then he gives examples. Verse 8, also in Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, he says. So that the Lord was angry enough with you to have destroyed you. When I went up into the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you, then I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. So Moses is going to begin to cite now some of the occasions when they did rebel against the Lord. The first thing he mentions is when he went up into the mount, as we saw there uh, back in our study in Exodus, and he was there on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights receiving from the Lord revelation regarding the law of God and the the tabernacle and the priesthood and all those kind of things. And notice he mentions verse 9 here. He says, I was on the mountain there 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. Now, please take note. That's miraculous. You scientifically cannot go that many days, not just without food, but without water. You can go a few days without water. But he says, for 40 days, I neither ate bread nor drank water. So how did Moses survive? Because he was being sustained somehow miraculously by the presence of God. And it was the presence of God that was sustaining him supernaturally and miraculously, that he was able to be in the Lord's presence. And you know, what an interesting thing, in some ways, a foreshadowing of how there was a different drive that was sustaining Moses during that time while he was in the presence of God. Uh, again, even Jesus, when he raises from the dead and he speaks about his own body and life there in the end of the Gospel of Luke, he says, you know, touch me and see. And he says, flesh and bone. And he doesn't say flesh and blood, but he says flesh and bone, indicating that that resurrected body of Jesus, that new glorified body that he had after he rose from the dead is the first fruits of what you and I will be. It's got a different drive. This physical body we're in now that's made for this earth it's flesh and blood the life of the flesh is in the blood it's a blood drive body that the blood carries the oxygen to the body and that's how we're sustained but the new body the glorified body which is made for the eternal dimension which is tangible still it, it, it did have tangibility to it it's flesh and blown the idea is it seems that again the blood had been poured out it, it was it was operating by spirit drive it was the spirit that empowered and enabled. And here, this beautiful foreshadowing how Moses, somehow, he did not need natural means to be sustained when he was in the presence of God for those 40 days there as he was being sustained somehow by God's presence and being in the midst of this. And here the Lord took care of him for that time while he was there receiving revelation from the Lord in this humanly miraculous uh, way, just a beautiful thing. Verse 10 goes on to say, Then the Lord delivered to me those two tablets of stone written with, notice, the finger of God. How amazing that must have been that God inscribing the law. You know, the Bible tells us today that God writes his will on the fleshly tablets of our heart. So on that day, he was with the finger of God inscribing things for them, the words the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire and the day of the assembly. And it came to pass, verse 11, at the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. And then the Lord said to me, verse 12, arise, go down quickly from here for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They've quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them and they've made themselves a molded image. Remember, this is a reference to the whole golden calf scenario where they were waiting and saying, you know, where's Moses? He's been gone for over a month and he's not coming back down. And as the people became impatient and 
they lacked belief, unbelief and impatience with God led to them doing something very foolish because they could not wait on God's timing and they did not like the idea. Well, he said he was going up there, but I mean, I mean it's been over a month now. I mean, we didn't think it would take that long for him to be up there and to come back down. So because the timing wasn't their timing, they started to get impatient and they started to become doubtful and that led to them really making a major mistake, remember, where they persuaded Aaron, you make us a god to worship. And Aaron, rather than being a strong spiritual leader and not wanting to please the people and saying, look, no, that's wrong. That's not righteous. That's not pleasing Lord. Instead, he acquiesced to have the favor of the people because he was more concerned about having the approval of people rather than doing what was right before God, which is always the first downfall to any spiritual leader. And, and Aaron complies with their suggestion, makes the golden calf. And remember, Moses is referring to here how as he was on, up there and on his way down, the Lord said, Moses, get down there quick. And look how God refers here. He says, the Lord said to me, your people who you have brought out of Egypt. Notice, nobody wants to take ownership of them now. <laughs> Moses, these people that you... <laughs> God and Moses had this very interesting relationship. You know, they spoke like a friend face to face, the Bible says. So he says, they've acted corruptly. They've already turned aside. You know, they, they haven't even gotten the full revelation of the word. And they're already breaking the word of God in compromise again pointing back to what stiff-necked and rebellious people furthermore the lord spoke to me saying i've seen this people now god says it and indeed they are a stiff-necked people let me alone god says that i may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven and i will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they so again moses is just reiterating these accounts that we read and studied earlier and again how Keep in mind, this was a tremendous temptation. Think of yourself being in Moses' situation, having dealt with these people who've given him nothing but grief and difficulty as he's tried to care for them and lead them and love. And now God says, you know what, Moses, that's it. They have crossed the line and my wrath, my righteous judgment is due upon them and I'm going to just do away with them. I'm, gonna, I, I'm, I'm willing to create a new nation and, and I'll use you as the you know, one who will, in a sense, begin that new nation. He says... I'm going to destroy them and I'll make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. And Moses could have said, sounds like a great idea. <laughs> I'll go back up the mountain. I'll close my eyes. You do what you got to do. You've already taken care of me for 40 days and 40 nights without food and water. But again, what does Moses do? He resists the temptation. We know is what happens in this account here. God sets before him a test and he passes the test because he could have very easily, again, God, that would have been right, but what Moses cared about, but would that really be what's best? Would that really be what's the most pleasing and profitable for your namesake? And he's zealous for God's glory is what we see here in this situation. So God sets a test before Moses. Moses passes the test, and that's always good because sometimes God sets those moments of test before us, and then we get to learn about ourselves to see whether we're going to pass the test or we're going to you know, jump on something and take advantage of our own self-advancement or do what's best for ourselves instead. So verse 15, he says, So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves a molded calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. And then I took the two tablets and I threw them out of my two hands and I broke them before your eyes. Remember that symbolic gesture as the commandments broke in front of them was a picture of what they had actually been doing spiritually in the midst of what they were doing. I mean, what an interesting and yet tragic thing. Here's Moses for 40 days and 40 nights fasting and depending upon the Lord and here are the people down at the bottom of the mountain and they're feasting and they're disobeying the Lord, doing the exact opposite. And of course, Moses, such a beautiful picture of Jesus. You know how often Jesus denying himself, taking up his cross, being faithful, and yet you and I so many times being self-centered and disobeying and dishonoring the Lord. Aren't you thankful that Jesus was faithful to finish the Father's will that he never stumbled, that as our mediator, he took care of what needed to be done to atone for our sin. He went into the presence of God and made atonement for us. And as our great mediator, 
He has been faithful as our great faithful high priest in ways that we never could because we often fail in our rebellion. And here Moses demonstrating this beautifully by his faithfulness amidst the unfaithfulness and sinfulness of the people. He says, verse 18, And I fell down before the Lord as at the first. Forty days and forty nights I neither ate bread nor drank water because all your sin which you committed in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. So he goes back into the presence of God. We know for another 40 days where intercession begins to take place. He says, for I was afraid, verse 19, of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was angry with you to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me at that time also. Boy, what a great encouragement that it matters to pray. Moses says of his prayer and intercession, one man standing in the gap, faithfully seeking the Lord for his best and his will. And he says, the Lord listened to me. You know, I love Joshua when it tells us that on that occasion when he cried out to the Lord to ask the sun to stand still in the midst of fighting a battle. And it says the Lord listened to him in a way that he had never listened to a man before. Again, our prayers matter to God. And here Moses stands in the gap. He intercedes. He says, verse 20, the Lord was very angry with Aaron and would have destroyed him also. So I prayed for Aaron. So he prayed for Aaron, interceding also at that same time because again, of the great failure that was for Aaron, here he is, the high priest of the people, and already he had failed greatly in his spiritual leadership. And then I took your sin, the calf which you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it and ground it very small until it was fine as dust, and I threw its dust into the brook that descended from the mountain. Also, he then adds, if that wasn't bad enough, verse 22, also at Taborah and at Massa, the experience of Exodus 17, and at Kibroth Hatava, Numbers chapter 11, when they were complaining about food and that was the instance where then God gave them manna. He says also at these occasions, he's just listing a few now, you provoked the Lord to wrath. Verse 23, likewise, when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, the first time they came, to the border of the promised land saying go up and possess the land which I've given you then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and you did not believe him nor obey his voice verse 24 his little summary again you have been a rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you again that's honesty <laughs> so he just mentions numerous occasions the golden calf incident, the occasion at Massa, the occasion at Kibroth Hatava, the occasion when they came around 40 years ago to the border of the promised land the first time and God said, go in, experience my plan, experience my blessing. And instead, they rebelled against the Lord in unbelief. They didn't obey his voice. Instead, they obeyed the voice of their own reasoning and of their own perspective and the voice of what each other were saying about a situation instead of obeying the truth of what God's word was. And again, Moses is just trying to indicate to them how many times they have proven their rebellion before God. That it wasn't just one instance here. He says, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Verse 25, thus I prostrated myself. Look what Moses does because of their rebellion. I prostrated myself before the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. And I kept prostrating myself because the Lord had said he would destroy you. Therefore, I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your inheritance whom you've redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, calling upon God to remember his promises as he prays. Great way to pray. Do not look on the stubbornness of this people or on their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us, Egypt, should say as they watch them be destroyed, because the Lord was not able to bring them to the land which he promised them, and because he hated them, he's brought them out to kill them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out by your mighty hand, your mighty power, and your outstretched arm. So Moses again refers to, and we know the account, how what he did in response to their incredible sin and the wrath of God being righteously aroused against them, that what he did... Again, as a picture of Jesus, he acted as a mediator. 
and he, and he stood in the gap to turn away the wrath of God that was rightly deserved against the people for their rebellion and their wickedness and sin, how he stood in the gap as a mediator and he says, I prayed, prostrating myself for 40 days straight. I prayed and I prayed again and he kept interceding. And, and I want you to notice this again here. As Moses was standing in the gap interceding here, notice what Moses is concerned about. Again, this is not, not his own self-advancement. He doesn't take the opportunity to, yeah, God, wipe them out and make me the new leader. Give me a whole new generation. What is he concerned about? He says, Lord, I'm concerned about your glory. And the thing that motivated him to pray and to intercede was his yearning and his, his desire for the glory of God. He says, Lord, your reputation could be at stake here. And I don't want the people of Egypt and of the world to look on and to misunderstand and think that these people died in the wilderness after all the great things you've done for them because you didn't have the power to do what you said that you could do as a great and an awesome God. And so his motivation to pray and his desire in prayer was to experience and to achieve glory for God. Not for himself, not for his own reputation. He was someone who cared greatly about the glory of God. Now let me just say this too in relation to this. As you see Moses interceding here. We've talked about it before, but because the scripture brings it up, I want to reiterate this again because I think it's important. Do not get the wrong mindset here, because it's almost a self-righteous mindset from earlier chapter, that God is such a hothead. And thank goodness, good old Mo was a level-headed human being. Because God's ready to just wipe them all out. That's it, I'm done. I'm wiping them out, Moses. I'm fed up with these people. Can't take them no more. And, and Moses, thankfully, such a godly man that he was so level-headed. Because first of all, that's the exact opposite of the whole reason why Moses is praying here. Moses would never want the glory for that. Number one... He's a picture of Jesus because he's a mediator. He's standing in the gap to intercede to turn away the wrath of God. Number two, where does the desire to genuinely pray in accordance with the will of God come from? The Spirit of God. From God himself inspiring prayer. Here's what's happening. They righteously deserve judgment. But God, in his righteousness not able to compromise his righteousness, his holiness, and his justice, also because he's God, wants to honor the love and the mercy in his heart. So he's looking for a way to be merciful to his people. He's looking for a righteous way to be merciful and gracious to his people. So how does he do it? He inspires one of his servants to stand in the gap in intercession, to cry out to him, to turn away the wrath of God, so that he can honor that prayer as God does and listen to the prayer of his servant and therefore be merciful and not have to destroy his people because that's not what God wants to do. Turn in your Bible, if you would, quickly before we conclude to Ezekiel chapter 22. So turn a little ways to your right through some of the prophets. Ezekiel 22, I just want to leave you with this in relation to what we're looking at there and then we're going to enter back into a time of worship and sitting in the Lord's presence. But Ezekiel 22 describes a time when Israel, again, had become extremely wicked and corrupt. Uh, Ezekiel 22, I'm going to begin reading in verse 26. Let me just read it to you. If you're not turning there yet, just listen so you can at least you can catch what's being said here. Ezekiel 22, verse 26 says, Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They've not distinguished between the holy and the unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the clean or the unclean and the clean. They've hidden their eyes from my Sabbath so that I'm profaned among them. So again, the spiritual leaders were completely corrupt in that day. Always bad when the spiritual leaders are more corrupt than the people they're supposed to be leading spiritually. Her princes, so her governmental leaders, in the midst of her are like wolves tearing the prey. So instead of public servants, they're public feeders. They're feeding upon the people, taking advantage of them to shed blood, to destroy people, to get dishonest gain. Her prophets, those who are supposed to speak on God's behalf, her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions, divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord, when the Lord had not spoken. So the priests are corrupt, the spiritual leaders. The political leaders are corrupt. The prophets of God that are supposed to be speaking for God instead 
are speaking false things and saying lies that God never said. And on top of that, just the people generally, verse 29 of the land, have used oppressions, committed robbery, mistreated the poor and the needy, and they wrongfully oppressed the stranger. Look at verse 30. Don't miss it. God says, so I sought for a man among them who would make a wall, stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, look at it, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore, I've poured out my indignation on them. I've consumed them with the fire of my wrath and I've recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. But I want you to see this. God says, my wrath was coming upon Israel. But he says, before I unleashed my wrath righteously that I had to as a holy God, he says, I sought for a man. I was searching for a man, he says right here, so that I, sh I wouldn't have to destroy them. I was looking for a man, for someone to stand in the gap as an intercessor who could cry out to me and say, God, have mercy. God, turn away your wrath. God, please. You know, we know that we did, but someone who could stand in the gap in intercession so that God could say, okay, you're asking. And now I can honor that prayer and I can turn away my wrath or I can forestall the wrath of God for a season of time and continue to let the good works of God continue to happen. But God says, I, I, in that day, I couldn't even find one intercessor. Again, how interesting, as I just said, but where, did the, where does the, the impetus to pray come from? From God. God seeks for someone to stand in the gap to intercede like Moses was doing in our picture in the Old Testament because it's God who's the one who deserves the glory and it's God who's the one who wants to be gracious and merciful to his people. Thankfully, Jesus ultimately fulfills that himself in the flesh when he comes and he comes as what? A man, one man to turn away the wrath of God for us as he stands in the gap and perfectly lives the sinless life and then sacrifices and dies in our place and takes the wrath of God and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But man, what an incredible thing to emphasize as well that the Spirit of God is still prompting and looking for intercessors. Again, the Bible says God looks for a man. It doesn't say God looks for a whole movement. It doesn't say God's looking for a whole ministry. It doesn't say God's looking for a, a, a really awesome musical team that can travel. The, God's looking for a man, a person, a man, a woman, one person who understands, you know what? There is an unseen ministry of prayer and intercession that can powerfully, powerfully, answer the heart of God and bring about the hand of God to maybe keep someone from perishing and going to hell or to keep a nation from falling apart quicker than it would need to and to maybe leave a window as it forestalls the wrath of God that's righteously deserved for maybe one more revival or one more opportunity for God's spirit to work. May the Lord call us to perhaps be that individual. Let's stand, let's pray together.